I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. How common is abuse in churches? Where does abuse occur? Can abuse happen in any church, or are there some churches more susceptible to situations of abuse? The Uncertain podcast explores ways the church needs to do better, often the little-discussed subjects related to the church. When it comes to abuse in church, we're all more comfortable thinking abuse happens somewhere else, far, far away. However, this belief leads not only to a plethora of abusers finding sanctuary in churches, it also leads to a deficit in safety for victims. Finally, this belief can lead to intentional covering up and overlooking abuse, right in our very communities. This episode's guest is Mike Sloan from Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environment. We have to unpack how our theology has been shaped and been used to take away agency, to isolate people, to, even without intentional malice, use to create an environment where abuse is sadly very common. I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to highlight this organization. I encourage all listeners to jump on the website netgrace.org and explore the resources listed in the show notes. This podcast supports TearsofEden.org, a community and resource for those in the aftermath of spiritual abuse. If you're finding this podcast helpful, I encourage you to like, subscribe, or leave a review on your favorite podcasting listening apparatus. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm super excited. When I was researching before, like launching the nonprofit, I was trying to get get information and find other people who were maybe doing similar work. Mm -hmm. And one person mentioned Grace. And then when I looked it up, I was like, wait, this exists. I had no idea something (laughs) like this existed. (laughs) And then my second thought was, how come no one else told me about this? And Mm. I'm starting to hear about it a little bit more. A few more people have mentioned it and stuff. So that's good. So I'm really excited to be able to highlight your organization because mm-hmm. I think it's awesome and super needed. So I would love to hear just in your own words, what Grace does, what uh, you do specifically. Right. So Grace has been around since 2004. We've helped hundreds of churches and Christian organizations in that time. Really, we were founded because of the lack of education, knowledge of how to do any kind of responsible prevention, and then responding to abuse when it does come to light. So often, the people who founded Grace are founder Boz Chavidjian and Diane Langberg, Dr. Langberg. She's a therapist and counselor. And then Victor Veith. And these are our founding pillars of our organization. Victor's one of the leading experts on child abuse prevention. And for for a long time, he worked at the Gunderson National Child Protection Training Center. Now he's at the Zero Abuse Project. So these folks, because of their Christian faith and because of the need in churches and Christian organizations, came together and really tried to bring a perspective that is multidisciplinary because you need a variety of perspectives. You need prevention knowledge. You need knowledge of where these issues touch on legalities and law enforcement issues, mental Mm -hmm. health issues, and all of that. But tying that all together was their love for God and the church to see churches do better. And so as a whole, we exist to empower churches, to educate them, help them with prevention and response. Now, practically speaking, what does that mean? 
we do, there's two major parts of what we do. There's a side of grace that does independent assessments and investigations in organizations. So we'll do fact finding, uh, we'll write a report in the wake of some allegation or when there's not clarity or there's, we need to shed light on something that's happened. Often it's in the past. Sometimes it's in the past and in, in the present as well they're dealing with. So we bring often a multidisciplinary team to provide an independent voice where we're doing some fact finding, we're doing analysis and giving recommendations. So the organization can hopefully with that knowledge uh, move forward in ways that are healthier and responding in ways that are helpful to victims and holding abusers accountable. And then the other half of what we do is the more proactive prevention side where we're helping churches and organizations with training, with policy development. And that's the side of grace that I head up. And we have what we call our safeguarding initiative. And I'm the director of safeguarding at Grace. So we have this comprehensive approach where we partner with, build a relationship with a church or organization. We help them through that relationship take significant steps forward. We train leaders, we train the entire organization, and we have materials for children at an age-appropriate level. And then we help with policy development and even consultation on-site in, in terms of their building and what's needed. So that's meant to be a kind of a comprehensive, helping them take significant steps forward in prevention and response. So that's that half of GRACE. The other half is the independent assessment and investigative half. Do you, you ever represent churches legally or is it mostly just like consulting for them? So we're not a law firm and we do not give legal advice. We have lawyers on our team and some, and so here's one of the, the interesting things. A lot of things that are in churches in terms of preventative measures and policies are actually from a legal and insurance agency, an insurance perspective. Got and the it. focus of it is on risk management and liability uh, ah. risk, you know, liability reduction. It's not that some of those things aren't good in and of themselves, but that perspective is not the perspective we actually need to make serious progress. In fact, some of the perspective is going to get in the way of serious progress. And so if you're focused simply on risk management and liability concerns, you're focused on the institution. <laughs> the focus needs to be on people and individuals, victims, the vulnerable. And that's where in our opinion, Jesus had his focus and the people who hold the power and those who are the guardians of the institution so often are defensive, are taking actions that are short-sighted and that are incredibly harmful to, to survivors. So if you are focused on risk management and liability reduction, you are going to have major gaps in your approach. Uh, so with prevention, let's just take children for an example. With a risk management approach, where's your focus going to be? It's on your volunteers and your staff interacting with children in the structured ministry. But where does most abuse occur? In just the Sunday school hour or just in VBS? Abuse happens at, at any time. It happens in the hallways. It happens in unstructured times. Those are some of the riskiest times that we have to account for. So much of abuse is happening in the, the homes of the families and churches. And so we have to 
not only address child sexual abuse, that's where the main liability is. We have to address emotional abuse. We have to address spiritual abuse. We have to address physical abuse and neglect and so forth. And we have to push prevention beyond the structured ministry and the church property to everywhere. And we have to push it into Christian homes first and foremost, because that's where the greatest uh, amount of abuse happens. So we have to shift our mentality and take a victim-centric approach. And some of the lawyers on our team, they're some of the most victim-centric people that I know. So it's not, again, it's not just because you're in that legal world or have training in the legal world that you're necessarily focused on risk management. Not at all. It depends. And in everything that we do, we're trying to bring a victim-centric approach. Can you give an example of what victim-centric would look like and then also what an institution trying to protect itself might look like also? So when you have a disclosure, let's say, of abuse, and let's say it's a child discloses and it's a leader who's accused, how we respond to that victim is often going to set them, it's, it's often a watershed moment. Uh, those who are child therapists and work in this field with trauma understand that how we respond to a victim, if we respond with skepticism, we respond with disbelief, often that is going to be re-traumatizing. And there is a failure to understand what bravery it took in that moment for that child to come forward, where they have been violated in this incredibly egregious way by someone in a position typically of power and trust. What an incredible thing for them to again make themselves vulnerable and come forward to someone again who is in a position of power and trust. And for them not to receive support and belief in that moment can be incredibly re-traumatizing. So what we need is organizations, need churches and leaders to promote a perspective, dispel myths like false allegations are common. That's just a myth. How do you respond when someone comes forward? What are ways to respond that are affirming and helping them and not re-traumatizing them? We just need to have a perspective that it doesn't matter who it is. And so often the dynamic in churches is, let's say that teenager, they're a mess. They're exhibiting behaviors. They're I hear this all the time from churches. Well, that teens, they seek attention, they're manipulative, they lie, they smoke, whatever it is. And all of that is used to write them off. When those who understand these issues on a deeper level know, that's what you expect. That's typical when someone is being subjected to something so incredibly egregious, such a deep personal violation as abuse. Amen. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So you're saying like these signs that people would normally say that's a rebellious, they're a rebellious person, they lie, they do all those things. Usually that is a sign of their response to trauma. Yes, it often is. And so for us to write victims off and say, okay, on the other hand, then let's say it's this elder or pastor who is the model. Everybody sees gregarious. Everybody likes him. He's been to seminary. He speaks these amazing words and says these incredible prayers. And wow, he would just never do anything like this. That is just, so that level of denial, right? Of taking, let's just dismiss this victim and let's believe the perpetrator. That's a pattern. And so when you have a response, though, it's not, it, it's, it goes way beyond believing. 
It's how do you then assess the situation going on, going from there. If you are taking a victim-centric approach, you are going to say, first of all, we believe this victim. We're going to report this to the authorities and let them investigate. We're also going to acknowledge often there are more victims. And so an insurance liability risk management approach is not interested in uncovering more victims. They have a vested interest in not doing that. Uh, a victim-centric approach is going to say, we need to shed light on this, and we need to ask that question, who else did this person have access to? And are there other victims, and what can we do for them? And that's, of course, that's scary. You don't know fully what's happening, but that's the path that churches should go down. Why might a church choose to have a more risk protection approach? Often it's, it comes down to the leadership. The leaders are in charge. They're in charge of the organization. They're in charge of the budget. And that's how they think is often we are in charge of stewarding this organization. And that's where their first thought goes to. And they're missing the mentality that, in our opinion, from the Bible, leaders should have, which is first and foremost, your position does not exist for an organization or your position. It exists first and foremost for those who are vulnerable. And so we need leaders to understand abuse is a systemic issue. And you have to work on a culture where everyone is educated. If there's going to be any shot at thorough prevention and any kind of adequate response, you have a lot of work to do. You have to engage the whole community in getting educated and understanding dynamics of abuse and understanding how prevalent abuse is, countering denial and myths and establishing clear policies, clear boundaries for how everyone interacts with not just kids, but each other, and emphasizing respect and consent and touch in other areas, and a culture really of accountability. So that's a lot. We could walk through a lot of that in more mm -hmm. detail and unpack that, but leaders in, in our work, are, are they often just have not had that perspective. I think historically, there's a lot of reasons why we could go into as well. In conservative denominations, that history is connected to a history in the U.S. of churches defending, splitting off and defending or opposing slavery. And I think a lot of that history has been lost to people in the pews and leaders, and they're not thinking, well, if for years and years, the Bible was used as a way to justify oppression, we're going to have some systemic problems. We have to wrap our head around. We have, to un we have to unpack how our theology has been shaped and been used to take away agency, to isolate people, to, even without intentional malice, used to create an environment where abuse is sadly very common. Oh, there's so, so much in there, so many things that I want to follow up, many different trails. But yeah, that is something that I'm becoming aware of as I'm studying spiritual abuse is how much that history has affected the foundation of how we interact with Absolutely. abuse right now. And that's, it's so, it's scary. It's so scary. You had mentioned a, a minute ago that you have a curriculum for children, like teaching children. Can you talk about that a little bit? So in our safeguarding initiative, all the churches we work with, we have children's materials that is basically just age-appropriate safety talks explaining on a very basic level 
what God says about abuse, what abuse is, a few basic dynamics, and more detailed as they get older, more basic as they are younger, and talking with, in a matter-of-fact fashion, about what is appropriate, and we just work on basic skills. You deserve to be treated with respect. You are incredibly valuable. You have inherent worth. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. There is no excuse for anyone to treat you with anything less than utmost respect. That's not only true of your peers. It's true of adults and how adults treat you. Now, when I was growing up in church, the focus is on accountability for children and how they responded. And it needs to be, in my opinion, everyone, look, everyone needs accountability. Children, of course, they need accountability. Those who have power need more accountability, in my opinion. And so just introducing children to basic ideas about their worth, about appropriate boundaries, about consent. So pair up the young children and let's, you know, okay, ask your, your partner if they, you want to give, hey, I want to give you a high five. And see if they say yes or no. If they say no, respect that. If they say yes, give them a high five. And this is how touch should work. Can I give you a hug? And it's not just for children. There are so many cases where this is not happening with adults in church. And there are men, especially, not being held accountable in how they interact with others. So this is a huge problem. So we want to go back and start young. Now, I would say this. So much prevention focuses on children. And I think we need to also be a little bit careful there. It is vital to talk to kids. However, even when kids are educated, they often cannot prevent abuse. They are more likely maybe to disclose afterward, but that can't be our main prevention strategy. Adults have to take ownership of that through education and training, establishing very clear boundaries where there's good supervision and no one's ever alone in church with, with a child. And there has to be accountability. It is vital to talk to kids. However, that cannot be our main prevention strategy is even when kids have good knowledge, most children in a church setting are not able to prevent an abuser who is determined to cross boundaries. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the myths people believe about abuse? So this is an area where leaders absolutely need to recognize these myths are common in their church. And that's a reality that has to be confronted if we're going to make any kind of progress. The most, the most important broader myth that just has to be addressed, I would just call simple denial. That doesn't happen here. Uh, that would not happen in church. We know everyone here. Someone we know wouldn't do that sort of thing. That is a stubborn, pernicious belief in so many churches I know and it must be confronted. So we need to begin to confront myths like abuse is rare, it only happens over there, or those kinds of churches, those neighborhoods, those ethnicities or socioeconomic levels. No, it occurs in every type of denomination, every socioeconomic level, and so forth and so on. Beyond that, there's so many we could name, but a few simple other common myths would be abusers are usually strangers. That's not true. Most abusers of any kind of abuse are typically known, most often known to their victims, not always, but almost, almost always. I mentioned already this idea that false reports of abuse are common. That's a myth. The research consistently shows most disclosures of abuse are actually true. 
even when they come out in an unconventional way or in an unconvincing manner. Uh, this is true, absolutely. Victims want attention or money. Not true. So many leaders do not understand. They have to have, we have a huge deficit of empathy, in my opinion, uh, amongst church leaders to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's more vulnerable, who has been violated, and to understand that by coming forward, often all they're doing is signing up for more pain. Uh, even if others respond well, they're signing up for more pain. And that is something church leaders have to wrap their head around and make more progress in. But there's others, some related to intimate partner violence or domestic violence. If something was going on in that family behind closed doors, we would have known. That's a stubborn, pernicious myth. You often wouldn't. We excuse it. Here's another one. They were abused as a child, and that's, that's why this happened. And that's not true. <laughs> if that was true, the majority of victims are women. Why aren't there so many more women who are offending because they were abused as children or, or otherwise in their marriages? And it's just not true. Look, that's often an ex convenient excuse that abusers try to use to gain sympathy. And they know they can gain sympathy with people in that way, especially in a church if they throw spiritual language in there. So again, those, that's a few. There's, there's so many more. And with the positive side of these myths is actual education. And thankfully, we have a ton of great research and education now, books and resources on these issues specific to intimate partner violence, clergy abuse, child abuse. There is a lot out there that churches can avail themselves of. And that's true in some of them are written from a Christian perspective, even. Uh, not all. The, my favorite resources are, but there are plenty of great Christian resources and books. Some churches are not as likely to, to read other sources outside their even theological tradition. That can be a hindrance to them at times, learning more about this. You may already know this, but the Uncertain Podcast is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show. Would you be willing to go through some case studies for a church just from a narrative perspective? Absolutely. Here's the thing. We can say some broad things. Do you need to take a perspective always of looking at each situation on, on its own and mm -hmm. take it on a case-by-case -case basis? There can be nuance. And so without more specifics, I think it's worthwhile because it can give us some broad help and, and broad ways of just good ideas in general of how we should be taking a posture and responding to certain situations. I would say even before we talk about anything specific, you can't have real any kind of prevention or appropriate response without that broader, it's really hard without that broader education in the whole community and without those very clear boundaries and a culture of accountability. But once you have that in place, then you have some things there where you can respond well. But I'm glad to, to talk through specifics. I'm thinking from 
a narrative perspective of these are the kind of things that could potentially happen. And with this idea of, oh, it's not going to happen here. I, I was, I remember being told that myth as a youth director that sometimes people come into churches and they train their children to lie and it's all for a lawsuit so that they can get money. Like I was told that as like a youth leader. And so that, yeah, that mindset of it's not going to happen here. And then it does. And there's just this freak out moment. (laughs) And that's when the church decides, okay, before we, let's say it's a case with someone in the youth group. Okay. Before we report this or do anything else, let's lay out the case and do our own evaluation. That's the worst thing you can possibly do because not only are you not qualified to do that, not only are you biased in in the situation, it just, it plays right into the hands of abusers because how grooming works in a church community, read the experts. This is what they say. Victims are not the only ones groomed. The church community is groomed. The caregivers of the children are also groomed. So that would be other volunteers. So if someone as a volunteer in the youth group, they are not only going to groom the victim or victims, they're going to groom other volunteers, the youth pastor, other staff, and the whole community to view them in a certain way. So then when a concern comes to light, what is the pers- if a church decides very foolishly that we're going to be the ones to sort through this and decide what needs to happen, what they often are then, even if they don't even recognize, and sometimes they don't even recognize this is what they're doing, they are bringing the perspective of the abuser to the situation and evaluating it from how the abuser has groomed them to think. Whoa. They're, so they're, it's, it's just a disaster. It's a complete disaster. That's why you need to report any kind of child abuse immediately. Even if you're not a mandated reporter, by the way, there are some states, many states now, where every adult is a mandated reporter. When we train in churches, I say, I don't care if you're a mandated reporter. If you're a Christian, you have a responsibility, a moral responsibility, first and foremost, for which you will answer to Jesus, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. You have to report that outside the system and let someone who has training, someone who is not a part of that system that's been groomed, to bring their more professional experience and skills to investigate. There should be no debate in churches about whether we should report this disclosure or not. Or of course, there are situations where it's unclear what's happening and there's not been a disclosure and that's a whole other issue. But yeah, it's something we see a lot sadly and have seen a lot over the years. In the case of a situation where maybe someone, a volunteer, has a suspicion about someone and they bring it to church leadership and there has not been a disclosure and there is no evidence, at what point, what would you advise in that situation? So in our training, we go through different scenarios with churches and try to make it concrete. So there are situations where you have clear evidence or some kind of evidence that should be reported, or occasionally it's not the most common situation, you witness it. I've had people in ministries tell me, yeah, I saw they, the parent just hauled off and, and hit them on the head. You should report that immediately. 
if you find images of child abuse, child pornography, uh, that should be reported. If you find texts that are sexualized or intimate, even emotionally, between an adult and a child, that should be reported. That's evidence, uh, potentially. So you should report in those situations. You should report any kind of disclosure. And then the hardest category is a lot of laws are written to say something like if there's a reasonable suspicion. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is not just a whim. <laughs> it's not only a feeling, but it's based in some kind of reality. So that might be a child acting out in certain ways, demonstrating a knowledge of sexuality that's not normal for their development. It might be other behavioral indicators, falling grades in conjunction with other things that are going on. It's hard to know in some of those cases, but I mentioned Victor Veith on our board. In child abuse cases, he would say something like, look, if you write down two or three or four concerns, by the time you get to your third or fourth one, it's good to go ahead and make a report. Because, and if you, look, if you report that information, here's what's not happening. You're not saying to the authorities, I've caught an abuser, go arrest that person. You're simply giving information to someone who has training to know what to do with it and respond appropriately. Now, does the system always work? Of course not. But the best shot is to report that to someone who has training. And if you're not sure, talk to someone. Don't ignore, if you're having that internal debate, don't ignore that. That's often a good sign that you need to follow up and do something about it. Call your local child advocacy center. Call someone who has training on this and ask, what about this? I'm not sure uh, in this situation what's going on. The right path is never to ignore those gut feelings you have or ignore any kind of signs. So that's where good training comes in. You have to have good training on those common signs of abuse and indicators of abuse that are those potential signs we wanna narrow in and, and, and hone in on. Without that training, you're gonna miss things. And of course, you're never gonna catch everything, but to pay attention. And that's where clear boundaries in a church setting is so vital. When you have clear boundaries on what's appropriate in terms of touch and language and other boundaries with kids, you can see within those boundaries who shows respect to kids, who is respectful of those boundaries. Abusers test those boundaries. With clarity there, you can observe who is serious about how we speak to children, how we interact with children. And even if they're not malicious, someone who doesn't take that seriously should not be working with kids, period. Often you don't know if someone is testing boundaries or crossing boundaries, you don't know what's really going on. And it doesn't do any good to jump to conclusions and just label someone immediately as a predator if they're crossing boundaries, but that must be taken seriously. We need to make, Gavin DeBecker is, is, a, is a good expert on this area. He has a, a book called Protecting the Gift and he says, look, we need to make careful, slow choices about the people we include in our children's lives and fast choices about the ones we exclude from working with kids. And this is true for parents uh, on an individual level. It's true for churches when they're thinking about their staff and volunteers. What about cases of abuse when there's a power dynamic, say a pastor and then a grown adult? Right. So you get the cases where 
it comes to light and the, the it comes out and people are talking that the pastor had quote unquote an affair with an adult in the congregation but with training we're hopefully able to see that is not an affair but that's clergy abuse and that's all abuse that's what makes it a particularly egregious type of sin is that it involves that dynamic of power and trust used to violate someone who is in the moment of the abuse at least rendered powerless or violated in some way first of all for us to not accept the the labeling of the church community or the abuser even to think of it as an affair, but to see that when a pastor crosses any kind of uh, sexual boundary with a congregant, even an adult, that is abusive. And pastors have to be held to a high level of accountability. Now, thankfully, some states are changing their laws and recognizing the spiritual and emotional power, the relational power that pastors hold over people. And that makes it completely inappropriate for them to have any kind of sexual contact or interaction with them. So Texas, other states, about 12 or 13 now, have made it a crime for pastors to cross any kind of sexual boundary. And many states have laws in place for counselors and therapists and their counselees and clients. But a few states, many, several still, do not have any laws even for those situations, which in my opinion is tragic. So we need strong accountability. And those who violate their, use their power to violate others should never be in powers, positions of power or trust again in the church. Bottom line, I don't apologize for that stance. If someone is using their power to harm others, I think most people just don't understand how devastating that is. And if, even if you think they are humbled and repentant, most are not, by the way. They continue to groom and test and minimize what they do and get people to accept that and convince them they're repentant and they're not. Uh, that's a whole other subject as well. I'm actually very relieved to hear you say that. So you think that someone who has abused their power from a, a clergy standpoint should never be in that position again. Correct. And period, period, no discussion in my opinion. And what is the reasoning behind that for someone who thinks that forgiveness and grace and we'll right. let them be restored and we'll create a restoration right. plan for them? Okay, there's lots of issues there. First of all, we have a view often of forgiveness that connects that to restoration or putting them back. In making it like it was, but that's just not, that's not uh, the case. We set accountability against forgiveness. Now, why do we do that? Abusers do that, and we have accepted that far too often. Even if you believe someone is repentant and is coming to a place eventually of forgiveness from God or otherwise, that in no way bears upon evaluating whether they're safe to be in a position of power and trust over, they've already demonstrated how they have wrought devastation in the lives of vulnerable people. And the, the stakes are just too high. They are just too high. So this perspective comes from, I think, an understanding of, I would call it, and has been called, cheap grace and cheap forgiveness. But it 
also just fails to properly evaluate how offenders are, how to evaluate their repentance because they latch onto that. They use forgiveness so often as a way to manipulate others. And I talk to pastors often who are sitting with offenders who've been caught and the offender is continuing to test them and groom them to accept if they, will they accept that this was a mistake? If this was just a moment of a failure because of their stress at their work or alcohol or their marriage is not doing well and that led them to do this. Those are all tactics that abusers use. They play the victim. They continue to try to deceive. And many pastors fall for this because they wrap it in spiritual language. They just say, this is really just God has shown me how much we're all just sinners. And I, I really see that I am, I am a, just a miserable sinner, just like everyone else. And I hope Jesus is really going to use this for incredible things in the future. Pastors suck that in and they don't have any kind of way because they don't understand. They're not educated in abuser tactics. They don't know that when they're minimizing with this language or denying or using these excuses that are they're not, abusers are not original typically. They're using the same types of minimizations, justifications, uh, reversing the victim and the offender. That's a good acronym for people to go look up. DARVO, um, Dr. Jennifer Fried, she's at the Center for Institutional Courage. She, I think, pioneered that term. DARVO means deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. It's the same tactics over and over. Churches have to do much better at educating everyone, and leaders especially have a deficit in this area so that they're not responding well. And Jesus talked about a community, I think, where, where sinners are welcome. Amen. But show me the passage where Jesus said, a wolf in sheep's clothing, when they're continuing patterns of denial and playing the victim and excusing what they did, they're to be welcomed into the church, welcome in the wolves. Jesus never, ever said anything like that. In fact, he said the leaders have to stand up to those people. And Paul talks about avoiding people like that, who are preying upon the vulnerable, who are deceiving others. There's just a huge deficit of connecting the tremendous resources. So we earlier mentioned how the Bible can be twisted and used to justify oppression, there's a whole lot of material in the Bible, if you used rightly, in our view, can be used to counter and speaks against abuse and for justice. And that's the way it should be done. Many leaders that we know, and this I think is generally true in especially more conservative evangelical spaces, they don't have those categories very well. And they're often, if they do, they're not very bold in speaking up. They're concerned about how that might be perceived uh, by their congregants in some of the conversations right now that are being had in our country. But we have to overcome this. Uh, if we're going to make any kind of progress, we have to use the tremendous resources in the Christian faith that counter abuse, that speak against it, that even straight from the pages of the Bible lay out common tactics. It's, they're right there in so many of those stories and use those in the service of protecting others. Use it in the service of telling victims it's not your fault. And this is a common way of the world. People in positions of power and trust so often feel entitled to do what they want and take what they want. And God hates that. 
And as Christians, we're called to hate that too. There's just so much work to be done. Can I push you outside of your expertise for a minute? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, this might not be outside of your expertise, but in a situation where the evidence is all spiritual abuse mm-hmm. and it's all spiritual and there's no physical anything, right? I'm curious what you have to say about that just for me and what I'm working in and right for how you help people and how you and how navigate that in a church situation yeah how do you navigate how do you respond so sadly we have victims of spiritual abuse come to us and they ask and some of them have already been pushed out of their church Uh, some are wanting to stay and try to call for accountability that's an individual choice often and it's a hard choice for many so i would say first of all we're often invited in into situations where the leaders are humble and ready to learn. But in systems of spiritual abuse, so often the leaders aren't, they're not going to allow anyone to bring outside accountability or education to shine any kind of light on it. So that's, it's kind of the catch 22 of so many spiritually abusive environments, right? Without leaders who hold the power, typically, if they're either actively abusive spiritually or complicit in the system, they're just often not going to allow that to happen. So that sounds really discouraging, right? Absolutely. So I think we do what we can. We fight for clearer standards, better standards across the board for any church. And as more churches learn, there is hope that, this is going to come more and more into the light and those tactics are not going to be as tolerated by members in a church like that. There are cases I've seen it where without the leaders being willing to humble themselves, there's so many toxic cultures that need someone from the outside to come in and do like an independent assessment or investigation, but that's often not going to be, allowed by abusive leaders. So that's the hard point. That's the sticking point. If a leadership is toxic and they're hiring a consultant, they might not be the best people to hire (laughs) a consultant. And some consultancies are pretty horrible. They're really bad. What are some good ways to know if the outside person is actually trustworthy? So a few key things would be are they completely independent or is it the situation where a lot of times when a a church hires a law firm, they're entered into a, a basically a legal relationship that gives privilege to any information, right? So that can be, there's not full transparency and certain things are, can be kept under that umbrella of privilege within that relationship. So to have an arrangement where there's transparency in terms of what is what comes out and how the findings are brought forward, is that going to be released to the public, to the members? Uh, How is that going to be done? How is there going to be transparency? And then basic things would include also just do they have experience in these dynamics? Do they have actual training and experience in these areas? And do they really get the dynamics of spiritually abusive environments and emotionally abusive environments? You have to look at their competency. 
their independence, and then how transparency is handled. I think those are the main areas uh, that mm -hmm. you would want to think about. And again, often leaders have a vested interest to have a, an investigation if they're pressured into it for some reason they would like to have something that they control the process. Yes. That's exactly the problem. Uh, so many individual abusers want to control the accountability that isn't placed upon them. That's the exact issue, is you should hand over that to someone else who is respected, who has experience, who is going to be more objective. And you have to recognize that there's really no way forward apart from a deep humility and leaders who are abusive, they need to not be in leadership. That's the bottom line. But so many are going to control a process that will, they can control, they can maintain power. That's just how it works. We've seen it over and over again, sadly. So there is a ton of work and I'm convinced this is the most important area churches must work on if we're going to see any kind of better health in churches uh, in the U.S. So there's a ton of work to do. There is. I'm going to have to process for three hours afterwards. <laughs> I'm so grateful that you guys exist, and I'm just honored to be able to share your organization with my listeners, and I could tell that you're very passionate about what you do. I'm so glad you're doing it, and I'm so glad that you were able to come on here and share here. I just, this is awesome. Absolutely. Glad to. Thanks for all that you're doing. And there's so much more to talk about. I'd love to come back sometime. Just if you're up hey, for that. Hey, Anytime. I would love to. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.